Hello and welcome to the British Elections Podcast with me, Tim Smith. If you're a first-time listener, this is the third in a series about the 1950 British general election, the aim of which is to go through the story of the election campaign as it unfolded. We're now at the weekend of the 28th to 29th of January, with just under four weeks to go until polling day. In this episode, we're going to see the end of the 1945 to 1950 Parliament, the, the, the official dissolution, and the, so-called, uh, the start of the so-called short campaign, which was then three weeks between the date of the dissolution and the polling day. The Atleys take to the road for an 1,000-mile tour across the country, and the Liberal Party releases its manifesto. We begin the episode, though, with another red card for a Godwin's Law offence, the second one of this election and far from the last, and also for someone who really ought to have known better. In a speech that weekend, the Tory leader, Winston Churchill, accused the Labour Party of spreading lies about the Tory record on unemployment. He said that despite claiming hostility to communism, the Labour Party use all the methods that communists use in their propaganda. He said their tactic is to repeat falsehood enough until it becomes as good as truth. Oh, and by the way, this was also Hitler's method. Own. Uh, But interestingly enough, nobody bothered to respond to that uh, particular unpleasant jibe. In a previous episode, I outlined Labour's leadership and uh, went through who were some of the leading figures in the Labour Party. And I want to do the same now with the Conservatives before we go on with some more narrative. Uh, It's a little bit more tricky um, to outline who the senior Conservatives are, because unlike today, where there's an official shadow cabinet with designated opposition MPs covering a particular department, at the 1950 election, that concept hadn't really been formalised. And to make matters more complicated, Churchill's idea of shadow cabinet meetings tended to be bi-weekly lunches of senior party people. Now, in fairness to Churchill, the public didn't expect to be told who would be given which post prior to the election, as they as they do so now. Um, Attlee doesn't didn't actually in the 1945 election didn't appear to have decided until the very last moment whether to give the treasury to Dalton or to Ernest Bevin. So what we can say is that it was clear that Anthony Eden, who was the official deputy leader of the Conservative Party and who'd been foreign secretary in the war, um, covered foreign affairs. And Sir John Anderson um, led the Treasury team. Um, Sir John had been the Chancellor from 1943 to 1945. However, since the Labour Party had abolished the university seats and Sir John's university seat was going... He decided he wouldn't stand for the new house. He might come back if Churchill was able to restore the university seats. But of course that meant that there'd be a vacancy if the Conservatives won the election for the Treasury post. The consensus now is that if they had won the election in 1950, the likely Chancellor of the Exchequer would have been Oliver Stanley. Stanley was a great-grandson of the Prime Minister, the 14th Earl of Derby, the Stanley or Smith Stanley family had uh, had been conservative for a number of generations. Uh, this particular uh, scion of the family had uh, held three different cabinet posts from 1937 to 1945. However, as it happened, uh, Stanley was to die later in 1950, and so was never the Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer when the party regained power. 
So there were a few people in fixed positions. Um, Lord Walton, who was the party chairman, the chief whip, Patrick Buchan Hepburn, and the leader in the Lords, um, Bobberty, the Marquis of Salisbury, sometimes in earlier period known as Bobberty Cranbourne. He was the grandson of another uh, Conservative Prime Minister. Um, his grandfather, the Marquis of Salisbury, had been Queen Victoria's last Prime Minister. Um, however, for the rest of the Shadow Cabinet, it was often something for a free-for-all, with the senior team speaking as and when, and sometimes on a variety of issues. Uh, Recognised senior figures included the lawyer, Sir David Maxwell Fives, who had prosecuted alongside Hartley Shortcroft, Shawcross at the Nuremberg Trials, Harold Macmillan, who'd served in various colonial and diplomatic roles during the war, John Boyd Carpenter, who frequently led on House of Commons matter, uh, Oliver Littleton, the businessman, and Duncan Sands, who was Churchill's son-in-law. However, lurking in the shadows were Churchill's gang of intimates. Uh, there was Professor Frederick Lindemann, um, who had been ennobled as Lord Charwell, who Churchill used to call the Prof. There was also General Hastings Ismay, who was known as Pug Ismay, and also Brendan Bracken. They were extremely unpopular with many in the party, some who believed their appointment was somewhat meretricious, and it also brought out the worst in Churchill's rather dilettante leadership, and others in the party were just plain resentful of, of what were considered their unearned positions of influence. I should also mention that there were absolutely no women in any of the senior positions, although we do hear one in uh, a party election broadcast. Uh, in a previous episode, I, I introduced Attlee. Um, I've got no intention to introduce Churchill. Um, if you don't know anything about Churchill, then you're definitely listening to the wrong podcast. Uh, must be absolute torture. Um, that said, I, what I'd like to do is perhaps challenge you to question um, things that you think you know about Britain's war leader. Uh, I rather like Otto English's book, uh, Fake History, um, and he points out there's so much nonsense written about Churchill as if it's fact, uh, both on both sides, both by supporters and detractors. Uh, English highlights the famous story about Churchill being accosted by a female MP who called him drunk only to which he responded, and you're ugly, but in the morning I will be sober. Uh, English points out that that joke was actually first recorded in a diary in about 1882. Um, likewise, uh, another joke, which is attributed to Churchill, allegedly from Nancy Astor, saying that if she were married to Churchill, she would put poison in his coffee, only for him to reply, if I were married to you, I would drink it. He says it's another fake. Um, it, this particular one had been around since the Victorian era and it had been previously falsely attributed to David Lloyd George during World War I and also Mark Twain in the 1930s. What I would say is um, I would challenge you to just consider what you think you know about Churchill with an open mind. So the other brief word of introduction I'd quite like to make before we move back to the narrative is about the Tory chairman, Lord Walton. Unlike almost all of the other senior Tories, um, they were pretty much all aristocrats, such as Churchill, who was the grandson of a duke. You've got the Stanleys and the Salisburys. And some of the others were landed gentry, such as Eden and Sands, 
or uh, if not uh, in that case some of them were business families such as uh, the Butlers um, the Littletons and also Harold Macmillan who was of Macmillan Publishers and in fact uh, ironically Macmillan was uh, married to a Duke's daughter so he was a, um, a man of money who had, uh, who had married into the aristocracy if you like um, Lord Woolton came from a much more hum humble background, at least by the standards of the day. He was the son of a saddler. His original name was actually Frederick Marquis. Um, he'd become a sort of self-made businessman who'd been the chairman of a Liverpool department store in the 1930s. And he'd also been extremely active in social work. He'd been brought in to politics, actually, as an outsider by Neville Chamberlain. Um, and he was officially an independent and put in the House of Lords to be food minister. Uh, he had to be ennobled as Lord Walton for very obvious reasons, because you couldn't have a, a Lord Marquis or a Baron Marquis, uh, since Marquis is a, is, a, is a senior noble title. So he became Lord Walton, which I think is a, a district of Liverpool or where, he, where he'd been active. Um, he served as food minister for the for the war um after the the day of their defeat in 1945 the following day he joined the conservative party and was appointed party chairman and he made some radical reforms in the internal party organization he was very much a shrewd political op operator we hear quite a lot of him at the election he's very much a, a party chairman who's in the front line and he'd actually fight three elections as party chairman so uh, as we move through the 1950s we're going to continue to hear about lord walton so at this point i'm going to move back to the narrative in the previous episode we looked at the row caused by the german government uh, as it uh, derationed food and petrol the following week, the German government found itself in the firing line again, and this time for their economically, or what was said to be their economically liberal policies. And, of course, this came into the British election campaign. The OEEC, um, which is the body set up by the US, if you like, to oversee the martial aid reconstruction in Europe, it's better known as it evolved into the OECD, uh, which is a much more well-known body. Um, but the OEEC, as it was, made a stinging report criticising the Adenauer government of West Germany. Uh, the government which had taken office in 1949 in the three western-occupied zones of Germany, um, which were going to form the new Federal Republic of Germany, had quickly begun to liberalise the economy from the very strict rules imposed by the A Allied Occupation Council. So, for example, they cut income taxes uh, dramatically. The top rates had been 90%, not dissimilar to what it was in the UK. They cut it to 60%. Um, the OEEC condemned the German tax cuts. They said that Germany had decided to live well beyond its means. It was ignoring the huge dollar gap. It was lacking any plan to reduce unemployment and, and had no uh, prospect of raising industrial production. The OEEC predicted that the 1950s would be, wait for it, a decade of failure for Germany. And it warned it could push the country back towards political extremism. And criticism of the German government worsened, um, this time coming from the Americans, with the US envoy McCloy saying it had to deal with unemployment and the parties must stop making tactless comments about the war. 
Well, the, the latter comment was probably reasonable, given there were a couple of crank members of the Free Democrats who were saying that France was as, as guilty of the war as Germany. But anyway, that was just about the worst prediction that you could possibly have made uh, about Germany. As, as, as we now know, that the 1950s and the 1960s were the were the, were were two of the most successful uh, decades that Germany's ever had, with the uh, the finance minister um, overseeing basically what was known as the Wirtschaftswunder, the the German economic miracle. Uh, however, in 1950, of course, we didn't know that that was that was coming down the track, and the UK press were very keen to have a good go at the new German government. The Manchester Guardian asked if the finance minister Ludwig Erhard was the new pre-French revolutionary finance minister Calonne. Um, Labour speakers, including the Prime Minister, were able to seize on the report as a warning what might happen if the Tories attempted to copy any of the German deregulation and liberalisation plans. Michael Furt in the Daily Herald said that the report was an answer uh, to the Tories, such as Oliver Littleton, uh, and not to mention Churchill himself, who had been praising the German achievements, whilst at the same time running down the UK's achievements, uh, and saying that the UK's achievements were only down to martial aid. He said the Tory behaviour was the meanest spectacle yet of modern politics. So as they say on Twitter, none of that aged well, um, what, it, what is fair to say is the Germans were uh, forced to accept some pretty low living standards in the, uh, the early years as huge amounts of money were pumped into capital expenditure, expenditure instead of being consumed as perhaps they were in the UK. Uh, but as I said before, by the early 1960s, West German uh, living standards had surpassed those of the UK on most measures. Um, it was also uh, it's slightly unfair to say that the, the German uh, model was extremely right-wing. In fact, there was a very strong social element um, to their policies, with German unions very much taking part in some of the industrial policies. It was just very different from the sort of Anglo-American adversarial model. So it, it wasn't necessarily... Uh, to the right, it was just different to the U- US-UK model. Um, but that was probably one of the worst. People have often criticised the, the OECD uh, for, and the IMF for some of their predictions, but that was a bad prediction to end all bad predictions. So back to the narrative, and on Monday the 30th of January, polling by Gallup's UK affiliate, BPO. this is the only poll series that was available at the 1950 election. We haven't got very much actual hard data. But the BPO poll was ex- published exclusively in the Daily Express each Monday. Uh, the Daily Express uh, published them with, with great uh, enthusiasm. And it showed the Tory lead over Labour dropping uh, to just five percentage points. Um, 47.5% for the Conservatives against 42.5% for the Socialist Party as the Express always insisted on calling it. And that was down from 48 to 42. So there's a very small decline in the Conservative lead. It's interesting that the rest of the press generally ignored these polls, um, sometimes because they just didn't want to give the Express uh, some kudos. But some of the broadsheets actually thought they were rather bad form. As, of course, they do today, the politicians publicly claim to ignore the polling Um, And they always say, oh, well, we're hearing on what we hear on the doorstep, the message on the doorstep, as they they always said. 
However, interestingly enough, by the following week, we do start to see a bit of a shift in the polls. Um, the same poll uh, the following week on the 5th of February showed the Conservative lead down to just one percentage point, 45 to 44, with the Liberals on 10. And the Express uh, look, used the, used the uh, reduction in the Conservative poll lead to, say, uh, to claim that Labour had said that the election was in the bag. Um, to to generally wind people up. Unfortunately, we can't really say if if anything happened the week beginning of the thirtieth uh, that really actually reduced Labour's lead. Because frankly, if you've only got one poll, you really can't say uh, that that's enough evidence to suggest that uh, the the movement in public opinion happened that week. Um, it's there is clearly the Conservatives were ahead in January and then in February becomes neck and neck. Uh, but it's very difficult to say exactly what and when uh, moved the dial. Food remained on the political menu for the week beginning the 30th of January, with Food Minister John Strachey um, normally on the defensive um, going on the attack. He said that, if, uh, taking to the Daily Mirror, said that if the Conservatives ended rationing, the cost of a five and a half pence loaf would rise to an eleven half pence, so that's more more than double if rationing ended. However, since bread wasn't actually rationed, this seems rather an odd claim, but it may be that he was referring to the fact that um, if rationing ended, then the cost of uh, the food subsidies would also end, and so the the the, the cost of bread would would go up. However, he was congratulated by the same paper, the Daily Mirror, for holding firm uh, with the butchers. Uh, he'd won his battle with the butchers over the weekend. They'd uh, agreed to pay his surcharge. Later in the week, Strachey actually took to the pulpit in a Scottish free church in his constituency, uh, which was in Dundee, to preach on how the Labour Party sees the Christian religion. He was then the target of some peanut-throwing students at St Andrews University as he took to the campaigning in Fife. They called him Sneaky Strakey, um, and he was reported to have been challenged on Labour's plans on agriculture uh, by uh, a crowd of hostile students in St Andrews. Uh, the same day, the NFU uh, joined the battle, saying that the Ministry of Food had wasted two million on bulk buying of Italian apples. They described these apples as completely tasteless. Uh, Labour's Ness Edwards claimed that if the Tories abolished the food subsidy, there would be a 12 percentage point increase in the cost of living index. Labour's Lewis Silkin and Jim Griffiths warned that the Tories' real plan was to end rationing and allow the rich to collar all the food. So union rights and full employment were also heavily discussed that week. On the 30th of Jan, the senior Conservative who I've just been talking about, Sir David Maxwell Fife, outlined the Tory plan for workers' rights. He called for an early roundtable discussion with all the leading unions. He insisted that the Tories had no plans to curtail union freedoms. The TUC responded with an open letter to members urging them to avoid any wooing from the Tory party. It said if the Tories won, its members would lose. Hartley Shawcross repeated the criticism on the Tory full employment offer. He said that there was absolutely no explanation of how they would do it. On the day of the dissolution, the 3rd of February, all political leaders attended a special religious service in St Paul's Cathedral, at which the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr Fisher, 
urged comradeship in the heat of political conflict. Unfortunately for Dr. Fisher, one of his own vicars, although albeit in the Sea of York rather than Canterbury, didn't appear to have got the memo. The Reverend Ernest Thorpe, a vicar of a parish near Leeds, wrote to his parishioners urging them to reject labour. He said socialism is a materialist doctrine, which inevitably leads to communism. He added that one could see the hatred in labour from the comments of people like Shinwell and Bevan. When challenged on the letter, Reverend Thorpe doubled down, saying that the socialists don't believe in God, so so-called Christian socialists are traitors to the 39 Articles, their religion is one of greed and of covetousness. Uh, the Reverend Th rows over the Reverend Thorpe uh, went on throughout the campaign. Uh, some of the uh, Labour Party members in Leeds tried to write uh, to a number of senior bishops to get uh, to, to get him sacked, um, but uh, the the bishop perhaps wisely said that uh, whilst he didn't approve really of of, of uh, priests getting involved in politics, um, it was not it was not for him to intervene in this matter. Also present at the St Paul's service, but also perhaps ignoring the spirit of the message in the sermon, or maybe he was just asleep, was uh, Harold Macmillan, another senior conservative. And this takes us on to our third red card. Over the weekend, he made a speech saying that Labour were fighting the election on the, wait for it, Hitler technique of threats and falsehoods. The greater the lie, the greater the success, as he put it. Sigh. That same uh, weekend, um, one of the more traditionally pugnacious speakers, um, Bevan, seemed to have taken a more reflective tone. Perhaps he had been listening to the Archbishop. He said that he recognised that he sometimes said things that seemed harsh. He said the reason for that was because he'd seen hard, because he had such hard memories of people like the Churchills, Stanleys and Cecils presiding over de de decaying Britain in which people had been forced to emigrate. Bevan was the target of a renewed Tory offensive, Oliver Littleton this time, saying that uh, Bevan's whole body was intoxicated with bile and bitterness. Churchill's great friend Brendan Bracken described Bevan as a human drain pipe, a master of foul words. A Tory chairman Lord Walton, seemingly without any sense of irony, said that the Labour Party was operating a whispering campaign. He said that in public the socialists were always polite and respectful, whilst in private behaved with extraordinary malice. Conservative candidate Mr F. A. Fernley, Fernley Whittingstall released a pamphlet urging the public to vote right or it could be their last chance to do so. Labour, he said, would destroy the Constitution. So the Liberals got an extra burst of publicity in the final week of January. They had a two-day Liberal Emergency Assembly, which gave them an opportunity to showcase their policy and then release their manifesto. They said that it was on foreign policy where they differed most from the other two parties. I think that's quite reasonable, actually. I think the liberal internationalism shines quite strongly in the uh, Liberal Party's uh, offering at that election. Lord Leighton criticised the government for taking any action on European unity. He said that the British public were willing to cede sovereignty to a new Western European Union. Uh-oh. He said Labour were uninterested in any such union unless it involved socialism. 
Uh, Lady Megan Lloyd George, who was a sitting Liberal MP, said that both parties, both the other parties, were cynical in trying to woo Liberal voters at the, at the moment. On the 31st of January, after their assembly was over, it was revealed that the Liberals had persuaded a syndicate of Lloyds of London to ensure their election deposits. Uh, in those days, in order to stand, you were required to put down a, a deposit of £125, uh, which in today's wages, um, I'm multiplying by 100 times, would be 12500 the deposit is now actually only five hundred pounds in today's uh, in today's money that was changed at for the nineteen eighty seven election, uh, and you forfeited your deposit so the one hundred and twenty five uh, pound deposit if you failed to attract at least an eighth of the valid vote, so that's twelve twelve and a half percent if you like, um, whereas now it's only a twentieth it's five percent of the vote. So the Liberals said that ensuring their deposits would allow them to field over 400 candidates, um, which was the largest since the 1920s, uh, without, uh, I don't want to put in too many spoilers, but I can reveal that the insurers came to regret the deal. We'll come back to that. The Liberals were given their turn on the radio on the 31st of January, and it wasn't their leader, it was the MP for North Dorset, Frank Byers, their whip, who was speaking. He said that for the first time in over 20 years, the, Labour, the Liberals were fielding enough candidates to actually form a Liberal government. He highlighted the key party's key domestic policy plans, which included lower taxes. He wanted to attack monopoly profits and have higher pensions in line with the cost of living. Now, in fairness to him, that was quite a good policy because the, uh, at this point there was no indexation of pensions and benefits or or for that matter, tax uh, allowances. It had to be, uh, it had to be done, if you like, manually rather than uh, automatically. Um, the Liberals also promised to cut food subsidies and said that as much as five hundred million could be cut from public expenditure, considerably more than the Tories were planning to cut. So that, that might have been as much as ten percent of of output. I, I presume that they weren't planning to do that in all. In, in all one go but it's not quite clear and of course it wouldn't be a liberal manifesto if there was no promise to fight for constitutional and voting reform and also of course reform of the house of lords um, they also uh, had another distinctive policy which was to abolish compulsory national service uh, that was the something that the other two parties uh, refused to discuss the Liberals said that in peacetime there should be no compulsion and that the US volunteer-based system should be given a chance. Uh, the popular press wasn't particularly interested in the Liberal manifesto, um, so if you looked at the Express and the Mirror you'd be lucky to find anything um, anything serious. But the Liberals of course did get a better hearing in the Manchester Guardian which had had a small L Liberal tradition and it was by far the most friendly of all the papers. Um, it particularly liked the proposal for stronger ties with Western Europe, and it also liked the idea of a free, freer currency, and uh, and was in favour of the distinctive policies on monopoly and restrictive practices, and liked the fact that it was balanced by targeting both firms and unions. The paper said that the Liberals had an advantage 
uh, over the Conservatives in lacking the baggage from the 1930s, such as the legacy of unemployment. And so the Liberals had more room for manoeuvre and, and could offer something a little bit more uh, unique. The other parties were not so keen, uh, understandably. Attlee made a characteristically mild-mannered, but nonetheless quite cutting criticism. He said that the Liberals had every right to stand, but said that their party had been in decline for many years and had no hope of forming a government, and now even lacked people of experience. Another very polite critic of the Liberals, of course, was Lord Pakenham. He said that the Labour government was the true heir of radical liberal tradition. He was very much a, a, a liberal left member of the Labour Party. He said that the uh, the Labour government of Attlee was the heir of the Asquith and Lloyd George governments, um, which had uh, started out the policy of, of, of welfare. The War Minister, A.V. Alexander, criticised the Liberal plan to end national service. He said that it was a threat to full employment. Herbert Morrison uh, also uh, opened fire, saying that radical liberals who believed in social progress are much better off with uh, Labour. Uh, he said that the Tory campaign, with all its fake liberal associations, tricks and flattery, was an absolute disgrace. Churchill accused the liberals of queering the pitch by running so many candidates. He said that the fact that they thought they needed to insure 250 deposits was telling. I think he was right about that one. He also expressed exasperation that they refused his offer of an anti-socialist pact. The following week, on the 8th of February, the Atleys hit the road, um, starting an over a thousand mile tour of the country. Unlike today's party battle bus tours or these big staged events which see the party leaders arriving in helicopters or accompanied by motorcycle outriders, the Atleys, who were in their 60s, travelled on their own. Uh, Mrs Atlee was always at the wheel. The newspapers reported that every so often they would stop for a break, Mr Atlee doing a crossword and Mrs Atlee catching up with some knitting. Since there were no speed limits on the roads outside built-up areas, the image comes to my mind anyway of Mrs Atlee driving like a maniac, woe betide anyone who gets in her grill as she thunders up the A5 towards the next event, Clem muttering, aren't you going a bit fast dear, as he shuffles the notes for his next speech. Now that's uh, there's no evidence at all for that. That's just my twisted imagination. But you can you can rather imagine Mrs. Attlee being uh, being tremendous fun. So their chosen pattern route, and we see this at several elections, was to follow a string of marginal seats. They tend to like to start in the West Midlands, then go up to Lancashire and then Glasgow, west coast of Scotland, have a day off on the Scottish coast and then return via Edinburgh and down the A1 and A6 on the east side of the country. So, for example, on the first day they visited Watford, Wolverton, which is near what is now Milton Keynes, Coventry, Oldbury, and then they finished with a big event at the Rag Market in Birmingham. On the second day they visited West Bromwich, Wolverhampton, Walsall, Stoke, Burton and Derby. Attlee tended to make uh, similar speeches at each of the event, um, but would add, add and subtract bits to respond to other things that were going on during the campaign. Uh, his radio he made a radio address on the 6th of February before starting the, uh, starting the tour, and that very much set the tone of what he was going to say. 
in this radio address, he said that he was in the unusual position of being able to say that the government's previous manifesto had been fulfilled in its entirety. The country now had the choice whether to stick with him and his government's fair shares policies or risk the Tories and their ideas. He criticised the Tory slogan of set the people free. He said that people who talk about freedom make me tired because they do not seem to understand what freedom means. The millions unemployed are not free. He also defended the government's use of rationing and controls. He said that the fact of the matter was that there were shortages, but without such controls, the strongest or the richest would get the bulk of the food. He defended Labour's record on the housing, saying that you would think that uh, the builders are all idle from the propaganda that you might hear from the Tories. He said that pursuing social reform was rather like driving a lorry up a steep hill. When the Tories are in power, there's a footbrake in the Commons and a handbrake in the Lords, he said. Labour had removed these brakes and given the lorry a powerful new engine. He said that since there had been no housing building during the war, the government had had to start from scratch. He said that in fact the Labour government had delivered many more homes than Lord Walton had said was necessary back in 1945. The Manchester Guardian was particularly keen on the Prime Minister's style. It said it was uh, delighted about the lack of US-style motorcades or balloons. It is a non-spectacular type of campaigning, but it is the type that wins votes, the paper said. Looking at the other stories that were taking place in those two weeks, it's, noti it's notable the extent to which the election campaign really did start to knock off most of the other domestic and foreign news from the limelight. I told you in the first two uh, episodes that the, there were plenty of other news, but in these two weeks, the the election really took the um, really took the limelight. There were a few other things going on. Um, there were some more strikes and more cabinet crises in France. The government there narrowly survived a challenge, uh, and there were quite a number of reports about South Africa, um, which was just beginning to start constructing the apartheid system. The popular press was still obsessed with the sensational murder trial, the so-called Hume trial that I mentioned. But even in the Mirror, um, which was perhaps the uh, least politics-heavy of all the popular titles, uh, the, the election was very much dominating. In the next episode, we reach Petrol Week, where a row over the petrol ration explodes... Uh, the parties continue their radio broadcasts and we're going to have a, a deep dive into what they said in all of their broadcasts and there's going to be some more red cards for Godwin's law offences. So that's the end of this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, uh, please um, tell people about this new podcast. This is an independent podcast um, and uh, it would be very helpful if you could spread the word. So thank you very much and uh, look forward to being back very soon.